1: Blog Talk Radio
2: Tonight, we'll go back in time the seasons past, when 22 men graced the rugged fields of yesterday, fighting for one more first down, one more yard gain, one final score, which would bring victory after 60 minutes of battle on the gridiron. Tonight, we'll explore the world of gridiron greats. Welcome to Gridiron Greats, football history and its memorabilia on the Gridiron Greats, publishing and broadcasting network, in conjunction with Slick Enterprises, and we're live From the Southport, North Carolina home of Gridiron Greats Magazine, I'm Bob Swick, publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I'll be your host for the show. Gridiron Greats is the only publication in America, focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. We cover 150 plus years of football history and memorabilia, and you can find us on our web at gridirongreatsmagazine.com. At this time, I'd like to introduce my special guest, co-host. He's a senior contributing writer to Gridiron Greats Magazine. A football memorabilia and card collector and historian, that has one of the most advanced collections in the country of pre-World War II items, in particular the 1925 Pottsville Moors. He's well known to Gridiron Greats Magazine and our podcast, And I'd like to welcome to the show this evening, Mr. Jeff Payne. Jeff, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, Bob. Thanks for the intro. Great to be here again. I'm really looking forward to this show.
2: Thanks for filling in again. As uh, I mentioned in the last show, Joseph Squires, my regular co-host, is uh, vacationing, watching football in Qatar for the World Cup. Hopefully he's doing okay. I've been reading all sorts of things about the uh, about the uh, play over there and the crowds and everything else. So, uh, be an interesting. He'll have some interesting stories to tell, I'm sure, when he gets back. But in any event, we're here, we're now, and we're going to talk about a very, very interesting and not so well known football, for lack of a better term. clipping and or premium set and that's the albert Richards set and jeff you're pretty much the expert on it and i'm going to hand off to you and give us some background on this very very interesting vintage football premium set
0: well i don't know if i'm the expert uh, mike moran is um, definitely somebody who has uh, tracked this set and has lots of info on it but Due to him and others, I've been able to gather up some info for you. Um, it is very rare in a set that most people don't know much about. It was um, produced in 1929. And the history, as I understand it, is a company named Fried Osterman was a glove manufacturer. Started around 1902 in Milwaukee. And they focused on gloves for about 25 years and then in the mid to late diversify into outerwear and um, for whatever reason, maybe they thought their name was too associated with gloves, they created a new division that they named Albert Richard. I'm not sure where that name comes from. Uh, the original name of the glove manufacturer was the two founders' names, so I'm guessing their family names, maybe their first names or middle names or kids or you know something like that, right? Um, <clears throat> so they started a a coat manufacturing, outerwear coat for men's manufacturing um, facility, and um, started advertising quite heavily, and using college football players in their advertisements. That was kind of their um, their shtick up until the 40s, when they kind of shifted to more of a World War II kind of a patriotic war theme in their advertising. Um, but they produced a bunch of different things during that era. They produced a couple of books, pamphlets for kids. They produced some maps that showed where all the football teams were located in the U.S., um, you know, some other other types of things. But, you know, what they're probably best known for and what is most desirable and hardest to find are these 1929 premiums. Um, in 29, they created a set of the 11 college All-Americans from that, um, you know, that All-American class. Each premium has one of the 11 All-Americans on it. Um, they're all wearing an Albert Richard coat, which is the kind of interesting, uh, unique, um, I guess, characteristic of the sat, which when I first saw them, I saw them about a decade ago. I think Mike Moran posted them up on a forum, and I just thought they were spectacular. I'd never seen anything like it before. You know, these great football players dressed up in These really, you know, probably high-end coats that they sold. Um, It was just a great look. Some of them were holding a football. Others were just posing, standing there. Some were indoors. Some were outdoors in the cold. Um, Some were wearing gloves, probably, you know, free-dosterman gloves. Um, And they were just really cool. Um, Never, had never seen them before. And uh, up until recently, had not seen them come up for auction or appear anywhere, other than I knew a couple of people that we know had this set. But I had never seen them come up before.
2: Right. And uh, seeing what Mike posts, and I do remember Mike posting those years ago and and seeing and reading about it, what I was pretty surprised about, I don't know if you got any um, information on this, they're basically coming out during the depression. And mm-hmm. um it I, I I'm just I was just kind of amazed in a way they would continue a premium or a promotion like that given the economic conditions at that time, not unless they felt that the uh higher income, you know, people of the academy at that time still had the money to spend for better clothing, so on and so forth. So I, I think that, I think that's a, that that's part of the lore of the set at the same time.
0: Yeah, definitely a depression era set. Um, you know, that year, nineteen twenty nine, the all American team, really there's only one um I would say, you know, extremely well known player in the set, um, and that's Bronco Nagurski. I think he carries most of the value in that set. Uh he's obviously in the you know, pro football hall of fame. There are four others that are in the college football hall of fame, um, but definitely lesser known. Then Nagurski is probably the best known as Chris Cagle, who was a halfback for our Army, three-time All-American, played in the NFL for a while, Giants, and then he was actually an NFL owner. He and um, another player um, bought into the Brooklyn Football Dodgers, who were a 1930s team. He was part owner of that team for a while. Um, um, Unfortunately, tragically died in an accident when he was only kind of late mid to late thirties. Um, but um, he's probably the next best known player. And obviously he's in the college hall, hall of fame. Um, but really Bronco is, is the big dog in the set.
2: Most definitely. And, and I think that's what drives the set to a large degree. And also for the Bronco collectors out there, which there are many um, that's, on a lot of people's want list, to say the least. I mean, we've we've talked about that in the past, that, you know, again, single-player collectors on an obscure set like this can really run up the uh, price of that particular player uh, to the point that it becomes uh, literally unaffordable for a lot of uh, individual player collectors and or team set collectors.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And these are a little bigger than regular size, um, you know, the letter. They're kind of not – they're 9 by 12s, so they don't fit into kind of standard folders and standard slips, which I wonder how much that impacts the quality of the the sets that are out there and and their, you know, how many were left and and survived. Um, Obviously, the paper drives and things like that, um, because they are a little bigger than your typical – you know, premium set that kind of letter size. Um, they have some interesting slogans, which I like on them. Each each of the fronts, the backs are blank, but the front has this image of the player wearing their coat, and they're all wearing, I believe, a different um, uh, a different coat style from you know Albert Richard. Has their name, has their position, has their college, and then it has a, a kind of a pithy quote. Um, you know, tying them into, you know, what they think of their their coat. So, for instance, there's a couple, couple of them for you. You know, one, uh, I can't remember the player says, like, the red-blooded coat for men of life and action. And uh, another one says, with Albert Richard as a teammate, you're sure of comfort, ease, and style. So they had each of the athletes, you know, kind of, well, they probably crafted the quotes um, and have those on the front of the premium. The banks are – the Backs are blank, so um, yeah. it's kind of an interesting set. So, I hadn't seen opinion. any of them come up. So, I hadn't seen any come up for auction. Um, I saw one trim Bronco Nagurski came up probably five years ago. I do believe it was Mike Morin's, I think a double for him. And I was able to snag right. it, so it was the only one I had until, ironically, this year, two popped up. One popped up at the national, um, you know, which you and I were at in in uh, we're, we're. You know, in Jersey. Um, unfortunately, I missed on it. Somebody else we know got it, which was awesome, um, which was great. And wouldn't you know it? A couple months later, somebody posted the set to eBay, of all places, and my jaw just dropped to the ground when I saw it. So I was so bummed that I missed the one at you know, in Atlantic City. And then here, this one shows up on eBay. You know, I did the usual, contacted the seller, wanted to make sure it wasn't going to disappear on me. You know, I don't don't usually try to get sellers to, you know, sell things offline, but I will check with them to make sure they're not planning to do that, you know, (laughs) because if they are,
1: they'll
0: at least give me a shot at it too. But if you're not, I'm cool with that. And he said, nope, I'm going to let this baby run to the end. And I asked him what he knew about it because I wasn't sure if he, you know, knew what these were or not. Um, thought I'd educated maybe a little bit, but he said, "Oh, I've, I've been collecting football for a long time. I've had these for a long time. I just decided to downsize and I've decided to let them go." So I was like, "Okay, that's cool." So I was fortunate enough to pick them up, which was great. So I got the got the set.
2: Now, in your in your opinion, Jeff, how many do you you know? Yeah, and I know you don't know uh, an exact number, but how many of these are actually in existence? Do you have any idea? Can you make a, 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 any type of educated guess on it? Yeah, well, I mean, it's hard, right? I mean, they're, none of them are
0: great. I've never seen it graded. one. I don't even know if PSA even know what to do with them. <laughs> you know, um, I, can't I know four
2: sets.
0: Yeah, really. I know of four sets, so there's four that are just kind of in our world of people we know. Um and you know, you gotta figure I always at least double or triple the number of known sets because I gotta figure there's there's um you know, obviously collectors out there that, that don't share and and you know, give you information. So I mean, I'm guessing ten to fifteen, maybe at the max. Yeah, I was,
2: right? I was going to say the same thing. I, I say maximum, there's ten, there's fifteen of them out there, and minimum, there's probably at least eight to ten. And um, mm-hmm. it, it's an incredibly rare set on top of everything else, and uh, a unique set, especially with the Nagurski in it. So it's, it's got all the it's got all the uh, the pieces for just a, an incredibly rare another incredibly rare vintage set. That's not that well known, but again, we've tried to educate people on it over the years, and uh, to try to get them to understand that there, you know, there are more things than football cards out there to collect. And here's a here's a great example of something that uh, you would never, a lot of people don't even know exists to say the least, and and is exceptionally rare at the same time. Yeah. Just, just another example.
0: I mean, so many dealers talk about how there's no pre-war football items out there to collect. And I always laugh. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff. Once you dig into it now, it's very obscure and, you know, very rare a lot of times, but there's a lot more out there than people would imagine. Um, and because it doesn't, they don't often go through dealers, the dealers don't even know about a lot of these things.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, And again, um, We did, you know, we did an article, you remember, in in Great Iron Greats, we did a, a, at that time, was one of the more up-to-date checklists on pre-war stuff you could actually collect, which Mm -hmm. there are Mm -hmm. certain things that we left out of it. So, um, I mean, it's just, there's a ton of stuff out there to collect, and uh, there's stuff still being found to this day. But uh, when we started posting on this set again, and I brought back memories of what Mike had, uh, I just found it to be fascinating to see, see it again and, and to actually see the, um, uh, and, and not, let me rephrase that, to appreciate even more so the rarity of it uh, mm. than I did 10 years ago, because it's, it is it is beyond rare. And uh, you are to be congratulated having a complete set like that, because that's amazing, a truly amazing piece. And uh, again, you're not gonna. I don't think we're going to see any warehouse finds of them over the the next ten years or so. I just don't think they're out there one way or the other. No, and they seem
0: to have been um, distributed as a group. So they also come with a twelfth premium. It's just a. Um, it just describes the set. And every set I've seen, or every collection of these I've seen, has that twelfth premium. So. My guess is they were distributing these um, in stores. You know, mine actually on the, um, the 12th premium at the bottom, it has a stamp for the store that I'm guessing these were distributed from in Chicago. And so they were probably bundled up in, you know, some sort of a folder or some sort of an envelope and, you know, distributed out to people who were interested in the Albert Richard coats. Or maybe we're buying the coats. Um, I've never seen an advertisement. I've looked as to you know these premiums and how were they were distributed. So just speculating.
2: Exactly. Well, it's uh, again a great set to collect uh, and another unique part of our football history and football memorabilia that we do collect. And um, just just an, another amazing piece uh, to look at and to view. Uh, just. Uh, just something that, in, in many ways, we probably will—we probably know now more than we've ever known in collecting about them. And in reality, reality we see um, a very small amount of them in the hobby, and who knows what's going to happen next. But that's a very, very interesting piece, very interesting premium and uh, I'm glad we talked about it tonight. Our special guest is here, and I don't. I'd like to introduce him and get into that part of our show tonight. Our special guest has been on our podcast before. He's the author of FootballArchaeology.com and two earlier books, Fields of Friendly Strife and How Football Became Football. He has contributed his perspective on football history to national publications the World War I Centennial Commission, and the National Archives. He's come out with a new book, and that is called Hut, Hut, Hut! A History of Football Terminology. And I'd like to welcome a good friend of our magazine and the podcast to the show this evening, Mr. Timothy P. Brown. Tim, welcome to the show.
3: Hey, Bob. Thank you, and just as well. Appreciate you having me on. Happy to Happy to chat for a bit.
2: Glad for you to come back on and uh I'm gonna lead off by asking uh or if you could tell our audience again how you decided to uh work on these football books that you have and in particular your brand new book, which I had the pleasure of reading your uh your uh PDF version and I did it in one sitting as Brenda was yelling at me to come to bed and I said, No, I gotta finish this. This is this is pretty interesting, and I showed her some of your photos you have in the book, and uh, she appreciates that because she has, she likes those vintage uh, pieces. So, let's get started by asking you: how, how did you come up with this book? Yeah, so you know,
3: I mean, this is my third, and it's my second one kind of followed on the, the first one, and so this one follows on the second. Um, just in, the, you know, my how football became football is kind of a broad brushstroke history of, of football, but some of the elements of it were related to the, the terminology and how different words that we use in football came about. And I, I just find that, I've always found that uh, fascinating. So I started working on it, and uh, eventually it turned into into a book. So, you know, a lot of it was just, I kind of looked at it and said, you know, one way to think about football history is, you know, look at the language we use and how, how has that evolved over time? And what, what I basically found, I think was that, you know, a lot of, a lot of the words changed or came into being when something changed about the game, there were new techniques, new equipment, new media, whatever it may have been. Um, So, you know, I, I just thought it was kind of an interesting way to kind of look at the history of football, one word at a time. And, The other side of it, though, so that's kind of the content side, but the style side was important, too. My first two books are both kind of you have to start at the beginning and read through them, you know, from start to finish. And I just wanted to to put together a book that was more of what I call a bathroom reader. (laughs) So this book, you know, it defines or looks at the origins of, you know, about 420 words. But it's told in about 220 stories. So it might be just one word at a time or a group of words. But each of them is kind of a standalone half-page, one-page, two-page story. You know, you can open the book randomly, you know, flip it open, uh, you know, read one story and put it down and you've learned something. Um, Now, if they're like you, then you can start at the beginning (laughs) and end at the end. But, you know, you can, whatever style suits you, how
0: uh, about it? That's really cool. Well, I found, I I love it. I love your work. Is there one, um, you know, kind of word or terminology that really surprised you or shocked you in, in its origin? I mean, is there anything that you, you discovered as part of writing that book that you think is interesting?
3: Well, you know, there's a couple of them that I think are. Well, there's a lot of them that I think are pretty interesting, but the ones that I really enjoyed were were words that I would have thought would have been around the game much earlier than they were. Um, and one of the examples is the term single wing. You know, I mean, so Warner started that something, you know, approximating the single wing in like 1907, 1912, with the, some rule changes really kind of gave it some juice. Because, you know, then he could snap the ball to a guy, Jim Thorpe, and then he could run with it wherever he wanted to, you know. So, um, but the term single wing it doesn't show up until 1928. Uh, it's not hmm. until Warner was out in Stanford or at Stanford and introduced the double wing, you know, or really made heavy use of the double wing at Stanford that uh, all of a sudden single wing starts being used to differentiate the single wing from the double wing. So it's just one of those things that, you know, you would have thought that it would have started, there would have been a name for it early on. Um, Feroe's offense at Missouri, and, you know, he introduced it in 41 the split T. He never called it the split T. At least he didn't until he wrote a book in, like, 1950. So there's a lot of instances like that But I just think it's it's interesting. You know, so- the delay in the certain things being named, at least the, the name we know him by today.
2: I agree with you with the split T. I was very surprised about that too, um, because I never realized it was that early as compared to basically being a staple in the 50s. So I, that kind of threw me threw me by surprise also. And um, the, the one thing I, I I definitely liked about the book, I'm getting off script a little here, is... I, I feel that the greatest terminology flowed through the 1970s. Now, I could be wrong, and I know I'm a dinosaur when it comes to football, but I don't I don't grasp a lot of stuff of today's game because I just think it's become overly technical in nature. Uh, when you have basically a coach for every player on the team, something's going to go haywire. That's the way I've always felt about that but to me the, the fluency of the of the language of the game pretty much goes through the 1970s and then 80s 90s and then you know modern you know really modern day the last 20 years yes there are t- there are different terms being used but i don't think it's, it it has the flavor that it had as the game was forming and that's just my opinion of it you know what i mean uh but again yeah. um it, to me it it is it's, it was so to me, it was an overlooked subject because I, I never saw a book like this before, where somebody actually wrote and said what you know where all these terms came from. You know, we just accept the fact and that's it. So uh, very, very interesting to say the least. Yeah, thanks. You know, I kind of one
3: like I feel the same way you do in many respects. Football has gotten more technical, and yet. Most of the words, the very early words, were technical words at the time. It's just they became known to all of us. You know, I mean, there was a day that somebody invented the word fumble, or at least applied it to from baseball to to football. Um, Split receiver or split end, you know, that that started to come around in the 1930s, I think it was, but, you know, at one point that was a technical term. Now, we don't think of it that way because we just grew up always hearing about you know split ends and maybe not so much about rpos right <laughs> so
2: Smart, you know, so i think there's a part
3: of part of that is you know what's familiar to you is comfortable you know what i mean something like that
0: yeah no that's that's awesome stuff thanks for thanks for that tim so i want to switch gears and talk about your website um com. i'm a member I love your tidbits. I look forward to them. (laughs) I got to tell you, and um, you know the one you just did on the um, the blind football team. You know here in the DC area, there's a yeah, that's so cool. Here in the DC area, there's a well-known deaf school, right? Gallaudet used to be called Kendall School, and I've collected a lot of you know information, not a lot of artifacts on. You know, they've been playing football since the 1800s, but I've never heard of a school for the blind playing football. Can you talk about the website um, Football Archaeology? You know how it came to pass, what you're doing with it. I think it's just an awesome site. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Well, you know,
3: um, when I wrote my first book, uh, Fields of Friendly Strife, I launched a website to you know kind of support that, and then just write about things that didn't fit into that book. And um, so, you know, that was – I did that website in WordPress, which is really flexible and it's great, but it just kind of comes with a, an overhead and a burden that, for me anyways, I found it hard to publish a lot that using that site. Uh, so I then wanted to um, – when I was you know, started working on my latest book, I wanted to kind of rebrand and have a site that, that was not linked to the names of any of my books. And I kind of I came up with football archaeology as the name, and um, so then I switched everything over to Substack, which is you know a different platform mm-hmm. that's re- really much driven for kind of a kind of a blog newsletter sort of format. And uh, so I ported all my article, all the content from the old site over. And then because it's so easy to use, continue writing you know kind of long form, a couple articles a month. But then I also Um, every day I put out what I call today's tidbit. So it's just random stuff from, you know, equipment. It's uh, some crazy game that happened, uh, you know, 75 years ago or whatever, you know, it's technical parts of the game, but, um, you know, everything consumable for, you know, kind of the everyday fan. Um, So, you know, I just, I kind of bounce around. Whatever strikes me as something I want to write about, then I write about it and, (laughs) you know, uh, it's starting to catch on, you know. I mean, I, I've grown like fifty percent in subscribers just so far this month. So it's it's starting to pick up a little bit, which is you know, which is good. Share the wealth. I
2: thoroughly um, enjoyed you know, that tidbit you, last night. I, I thoroughly enjoyed that tidbit also last night. It was just great to read, and I said, "Oh my lord, how can you know?" Yeah, that that has to have been so so difficult and. And at least it was gentlemanly enough that the other team wouldn't take advantage of it type of thing since they're saying, you know, they called out uh, plays and stuff like that. But that that has been incredible to watch, to say the least. Yeah. And so, you know, that's one of, that's, that article is a perfect example of, you know, a
3: lot of times when I'm, I'm either doing just kind of general research or targeted research, I, you know, I might be searching for information about one thing, and I just happen to notice that – the article in the next column, you know, I happened to notice the headline, and that's where that article came from. I noticed the headline about this flying team in, in uh, Kentucky. And, uh, you know, so then I ended up, you know, spending time researching it and finding scores of their games over the six- or eight-year period that they played. And, you know, I just tried to fill in the gaps as much as I could. I was able to find a couple of images of the teams. And, uh, you know, so but that's kind of the typical way – that that the tidbits come up it's just i kind of happen upon something and i just have a way of storing that those kinds of articles and information to come back to and and write a tidbit on later on
0: i love the um how they um tapped on the goal to give the kicker yeah. an idea <laughs> of where the goal posts were that was awesome
3: <laughs> what yeah. a
0: tidbit I mean, that can... was and it makes perfect sense right
3: yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's some of the things like, you know, obviously they made accommodations, uh, for those that haven't read the article, um, they, the opposing team had to run between the tackles as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, I love the story, you know, in 1905, they had a, a guard who, you know, they had some kind of guard, some kind of play, you know, some of guard draw or something along those lines. Maybe it was a guards back formation, but, um, You know, so he gets the ball and he breaks through and he's, you know, run away (laughs) wide open headed to the end zone, but he didn't know where he was going. He couldn't see and he runs out of bounds, you know, and the the game ends up being tied. So, uh, you know, zero, zero. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, you think about how hard it had to be for those kids to play. They typically weren't going to be the ones delivering the blow, right? I mean, you know, I guess at the snap, they sh- they could charge across. But otherwise, you know, they're just feeling somebody running into them and grabbing them and trying to tackle them. And, you know, that's kind of the best they could do. So, amazing. Unbelievable. Play. and they, they they kept doing it for, you know, I think it was eight years. That they played maybe a little
0: bit longer. It's crazy they completed a forward pass. When I read that, my yeah. jaw just dropped. I
3: mean, I don't <laughs> even know how
0: you would pull that off, right?
3: <laughs> that's yeah. insane. Yeah, I and. Mean, Sighted teams had trouble completing forward <laughs> passes
2: back then, but you know,
0: yeah, exactly. They did it,
2: so <laughs> um, unbelievable. Hey Tim, with your new book, uh, do you have any uh, stories you like to share with us and uh, our audience on uh, your writing it? Any, any any interesting tidbits on the book itself? Yeah, I mean, so
3: you know, I, I mentioned earlier the the single wing. Um, you know, a couple of my other. I mean, the ones that I enjoy the most are the ones that kind of upset the apple card or, you know, kind of everybody knows something is true and then it turns out that it's not. <laughs> so, um, so like, you know, one of them is like, you know, the granddaddy of them all, you know, that was uh, everybody, you know, typically everybody kind of credits that to, um, now I'm blanking on the name, um, uh, Keith Jackson can't even believe it. I can't think of his name. But, you know, it turned out, you know, once I once I got into researching it, it, it turned out that um you know, that expression goes back to the to the late eighteen hundreds and it was, you know, tied very loosely to the Rose Bowl in the thirties and then definitely in the in the forties and even more so, um there was about a ten year eleven year run. I want to say like 77 to
0: 89
3: or 88 or something like, 87, I think it was, um, where the Rose Bowl printed Granddaddy of them all on the Rose Bowl tickets, right? So Keith Jackson did his first Rose Bowl game in 1989 after they'd already printed it 11 years in a row. So it's just one of those where – you know, I mean, I love Keith Jackson and love the story of him coining the phrase and tying it to the Rose Bowl, but in fact, he really didn't have much to do with it other than, you know, repopularize it. You know, so those kinds of, uh, uh, you know, I guess any kind of story where it's like, um, you know, the, there's a legend that says the one who created something or started a particular movement or play it turns out they, that's not the that's not
0: the truth. So I think those are fun. Yeah, then uh, if you asked Keith Jackson, he would have graciously mentioned that he, he picked that up from somewhere else. Um, yeah. You know, having having followed yeah, I mean, him, listen. I'm sure he would not take credit for it. Um, yeah. But uh, that's interesting. I did not know that. Well, yeah,
3: there, I did. Yeah, there's either. other uh, there's other ones that I kind of got into that it, like. Quarterback sneak, now you know. To me, I grew up a Packers fan, so the quarterback sneak of all time is Bart Starr, and uh, you know crossing the goal line against the Cowboys behind Jerry Kramer. Um, but I think of that. You know, I think of the quarterback sneak as a power play, not a deception play. I mean, yeah, you know, you go on one or two, or you know, there's there's a certain amount of deception. I don't think they a whole, the whole lot sneaky about the play hmm. and but but the issue is or the, the way it got that name uh was from you know back in the late teens so and i'm talking the 19 <laughs> uh 1917 1918 era um back then a lot of teams when they're passing or potentially punting they'd line up in the short punt formation and um and then, you know, again, either pass, punt, or run, run the ball. And so a couple of teams, Center and Ohio State, both uh, used what they called the quarterback sneak. In, in effect, what they were doing was they they lined up in the short punt and then they snapped the ball to the quarterback, who was kind of an up-back, as, you know, in, in terms of the way that we currently align for punts. There's, you know, three up-backs typically. So he was one of those, and he'd get the snap and then he'd go shooting up the middle of the, or you know right behind the center, so that was the sneak part of the quarterback sneak. And then once you know offense has moved from you know long snaps you know to the tailback like in a single wing or in the Notre Dame box, and they you know went under center uh, or went back under center, um, that's that's when kind of our our what we now think of as the quarterback sneak you know arrived whatever 30 years after the original uh, quarterback sneak. Hmm. So, you guys, know, that's just, you know, an example of uh, the origin of a play or of a term isn't necessarily what you think it is. Um, you know, just it predates the type, you know, even the offenses that, that we now run with the quarterback under center, you know, that quarterback sneak predates all of that.
0: So, Yeah, things um, come around, right? Come around and go around. Um, You know, last episode, we were talking to John about, you know, the flying wedge. And I mentioned that, um, you know, this concept of helping the runner from behind back in vogue. And you mentioned that, you know, that concept, the mall, had been around since the 1800s. It was illegal for a while. It was legalized again maybe 10 years ago. It's funny how things kind of come and go in football and, and circle back around. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's,
3: um, you know, the, uh, well, you know, the mall has a, has a long history, you know, back into, into rugby. Um, and I, you know, I mean, the vast majority of football fans don't even recognize the term. Right. I mean, it could just, cause it was never, it was never used. Um, and yet, you know, like you said, you know, the past 10 years or so, um, the n f l uh and college have uh made it legal again to push you can't pull your you know quarterback or whoever the ball, you know the the runner is uh but you can push
0: and it still
3: remains illegal in high school to do that
0: yeah, I don't like it personally. I don't know how you feel, but I don't think teams are exploiting it the way they could. I mean I can envision a you know q b sneak done a little bit differently with maybe the qB backer uh, you know, back a yard, surrounded by, you know, um, people in the backfield, snapping it to them, grabbing him, and just, you know, a mass of four people or five people just hitting the line together. I, I, I don't like it <laughs> personally, but I can't believe the NFL isn't using it more. Using it strategically, right, instead of just, like, pushing somebody along if they happen to get stuck.
3: Yeah, 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 I mean it- – I think that there's, I've seen some, uh, some high school teams, you know, I've seen some, some film of mm-hmm. them kind of using it a little bit more strategically. Um, but yeah, I just soon, well, for a couple of reasons, you know, I think uh, American football, would be fine if they went, you know, kind of the Canadian style with the defensive line having to be one yard back um, just, you know, fewer, you know, concussive kinds of hits for the linemen mm-hmm. and, it would make sneaks, you know. Typically, in the CFL, anyways, if you go for a uh, for a quarterback sneak, it's
0: pretty good chances you're going to make it. Mm-hmm. So. So back to your books, um, what are the differences and similarities? You mentioned kind of they evolve off of each other. Um, you know, w- what do you think the the differences similarities are between the books you've written and you know, kind of what are your thoughts on the progression of those books over time? Yeah, so the the, the first one is really about the
3: teams and the times of the World War I Rose Bowls. So uh, the 18 and 19 Rose Bowls were played by military teams, and I actually got into that purely from a collecting standpoint. I happened to buy a program. Mm-hmm. Uh, one time that was – I wasn't sure really what I bought, and it turned out that it was a program for a playoff game. uh, Out in California, they had a playoff to get – to determine the Western um, representative for the 1919 Rose Bowl. And that kind of set me off down a path. Um, But so, you know, that book is really, you know, kind of a classic um, profiling of – Teams in a time um you know so it's it's a pretty focused subject now you know I try to kind of put them in the uh like you know try to put them in into the place and time and kind of fill in all that background um but but it is a you know more of a profile sort of book um, uh, how football became football is is very much of a you know I basically tried to describe how the game evolved but not just the play on the field it's you know it's the technical side of things it's how did practice evolve how did Mm -hmm. uniforms and gear evolve how did the media how did the fan and environment evolve how did the field and the stadium evolve so the you know and kind of they they kind of all changed together um in one way or another but um so that is again very much of a you know kind of broad brush strokes of of the game um and then, so, and then the third one is really, um, you know, looking much more at the game from a language standpoint. So there's overlap certainly between the second one and the third one. Um, and if you've, you know, if you compared the two books, you'd see some of the same images, some of the same drawings, that kind of thing, because, you know, I think they still fit. But it's just kind of, it's looking at a lot of the same subject matter, but just, in a, you know, slicing it differently. And so oh. you know I just you know I learned a bunch of things by just looking at some of the same information, but doing it from a very different you know when did this when did the word first occur as opposed to when did a certain player formation uh or piece of equipment you know first occur, which is really what the second book was more about so it was just you know I, I think it's just um even something as simple as you know home and away games. You know, that seems like just such a straightforward term, or two terms. But, you know, in football, they called them home games, you know, starting in the 1880s, 1890s. But the idea of away games as a term, that didn't show up until, like, the 1930s in in American football. You know, soccer and, and even baseball used it earlier, but football, away game didn't show up till the 30s and it just seems like what did they call it <laughs> you know um you know i've got a i've got an image from a Syracuse yearbook and they called them home games and abroad games which wow. seems like such a bizarre term but you know you know somebody has to invent words <laughs> you know <laughs> along the way and, and so exactly uh they figured out they thought abroad made sense. Well, okay, no, one, you know, that did, didn't get a whole lot of pickup, but um, but it was yet I think another twenty years before a away game, you know, really became common, uh, got into common usage.
2: Now the other the other very interesting part of your book were the uh, photographs in it, um, and like I said, um, I, I I truly enjoyed looking at them. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about them as as far as uh, how you came about uh, using them or getting them? And uh, by any chance, do you collect any football photos or ephemera for uh, football itself? So, um, so let me answer the second
3: one first about you know what do I collect? Um, you know, so I started off uh, focused a hundred percent on the Rose Bowl, and I had a you know really nice ticket collection that I, I sold in the past couple of months. Um, and I, I just kind of, um, as, as I've written each book, I, I went from kind of a full Rose Bowl to then I was, you know, I still collect some military football uh, stuff, especially pre-World you know, War II. Um, and then for the last two books, I've been mostly focused on buying RPPCs, you know, some schedules, some, you know, kind of brochures and obviously a lot of books by, you know, football coaches. Um, so, but but I'm much more focused on, um, you know, just anything that will give me an image I can use or um, information about, you know, how people thought about football in 1932 or 1945 or whatever it was. So I get some, some of my images that way, probably more from RPPCs than anything else. Um, but mostly what I do is I do both kind of general and targeted searches. So I go through, you know, I've gone through, you know, I think now thirty-two, thirty-three hundred 3,300 old college yearbooks to just, I go to the football section and just kind of page through them, trying to find images of things that we don't do it that way anymore, whether it's equipment, uh, just the nature of the game, plays along the sideline, you know, any, any number of things like that, and then I just, you know, if I find an interesting image, I just, I kind of clip it, save it, and have a way of, you know, storing and organizing them, and I, I've done the same thing with, there's some great university and state archives, photographic archives, so Michigan has a great one, uh, Duke has, a, you know, fabulous, uh, uh, you know, archives, so sort does of Stanford, you know, and there's other schools, um, so I just kind of, grab them and log them and then I also you know if I for instance you know just like with the the Kentucky School for the Blind okay I needed to write a story about that and I needed some images so there was an instance where I'm I'm doing a targeted search I'm trying to find some things to fill in or to provide some imagery around the story and so um, but regardless of whether I'm doing a general search or targeted I'm always looking for the image that's right next to the one that I'm trying to find, you know, or the article that's in the next column, because that's, you know, you just find a lot of great, you know, 1890s illustrations that way, um, you know, images, and and then just, you know, just content too. So, so again, it's kind of, I'm doing targeted searches, but I also do a lot of just general searching through archives. What do you have? You know, what, what do you have here that, uh, you don't see in football anymore.
2: I no, forgot about your uh, awesome. I forgot, I forgot, I forgot about your Rose Bowl uh, ticket collection, and um, I, I remember you mentioned that before. As a complete aside, right. what's the toughest Rose Bowl ticket, in your opinion, to collect? I'm just curious.
3: Well, you know, in thank like, you, you know, there's a number of them that I I, I never even saw an, an image of them. Um, so I've never seen an O2. Um, there's Washington State has a 16 in their archives. Um, the earliest one I ever got my hands on was a 23. Um, so, you know, really anything, you know, you, you can get stubs from the late 20s fairly readily and the, and the early 30s. But really, anything uh, pre-1930, especially for a full ticket, that is exceedingly difficult to get. Um, You know, I I had a uh, a 42. um, Yeah, I had a couple of them from Pasadena for the game that wasn't played, and then I had a full one from um, from Durham. uh, But it was all stained and nasty looking. But hey, it's the only one I ever found
2: that was a full. So. (laughs) <laughs> you know, for that's right.
1: Exactly.
0: Tim, any uh, new book ideas you have? Anything that's bubbling around in your head? Are you um, planning another book?
3: Yeah, I, you know, I think if... Uh, so I am open to doing, you know, so I, I probably should have thought about how I named this Hut Hut Hike. I should have maybe done a Hut 1, Hut 2 or something like that. But... Um, <laughs> As potentially, there's another one of these books coming out. You know, I just as many words. You know, I like I said, it's like um, 420 some words or something like that in in there. But there's a bunch of them that didn't get in. And every time I listen to a broadcast, I down another one that, that could go in. So you know, potentially um, do something with that for sure. I'm going to keep writing some of those up. And I, there's a section of my uh, website. That's now, I renamed it, but it's now called Hut, Hut, Hike. So I, I'll add some new terminology in there and post that. Um, but the other one that, you know, I think maybe the likeliest thing that I would do is, is a a, a book on you know football oddities. So, you know, I, a lot of innovations in the game uh, come through somebody finding some kind of different way to do things or, uh, Uh, they notice a mistake in practice and it turned, you know, like several of the option series that that came out in the sixties and even the nineties were, you know, stemmed from a coach realizing that a mistake that was made in practice had a lot of potential, but there's also a lot of innovation that comes from somebody kind of, you know, kind of, kind of busting through, you know, finding a loophole in the rules and say, they do something that is legal, but, in some cases, everybody looks at that and says, oh, that's great, I'm going to start doing that myself. And in other cases, they view the use of a loophole as kind of uh, bad sportsmanship or silly or whatever it may be. So my point is, is kind of there's there's innovations and there's oddities, and there's a fine line between the two. <laughs> and so, uh, But I, yeah. I think the oddities are really fun. Um, I've written some things in the past uh, about the reverse center that, you know, Syracuse ran it in 1941, 40 or 41, Um, the reverse quarterback that came out of Georgia Tech and some other places, the tower play, you know, having a guy guy stand on top of another man's shoulders to block an extra point, you know, just things like that that were quickly ruled illegal, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Uh, You know, I just, I find those kinds of things, really interesting um, because again, it's, you know, uh, there's a a guy who is a coach in Arizona who argued that we should number the football field from zero to 100 instead of going up to 50 and then going back down from 50 to zero. Now, you know, there's nothing that says you couldn't do it that way, uh, but no one ever picked them, you know, took them up on the offer either. You know, so it's just things like that, that uh, make sense in their own way. um, But, you know, typically end up getting, getting shut down. If if not right away, then, you know, by, by the end of, or by the next rules committee meeting, you know, they they kind of find
0: a way to get rid of certain things pretty quick. Yeah, no doubt. What's the best way for people to get your books? Is it Amazon? Do you have a direct site? What's the best way to purchase your book?
3: Yeah, it's Amazon. So the, this Hut Hut Hike, um, is not available yet. I'm hoping to have it available in the next 10 days or so. Um, But the other two are available on Amazon. Um, And then the way I do it on Amazon, um, if you, so it'll be available both in print and in, you know, for the Kindle reader on Amazon. If you have Kindle unlimited, if you subscribe to that, then you'll be able to read the book for free. uh, All -hmm. all three of them. Um, And then, you know, as an author, you have the option that, you know, to just click a setting on Amazon that they can then also distribute it through like Walmart and Barnes and Noble. And so that will happen probably, you know, not in time for the Christmas season, but um, that will eventually, you know, work its way through the process too. So if for some reason somebody wants to buy from one of those, uh, you know, those organizations, you know, they can have at it. But so basically Amazon
2: is the is the answer. Yeah. We're almost out of time. Um, any advice that you may have for a beginning collector and or writer football history and football collecting memorabilia?
3: Yeah. You know, I, I guess, you know, I look at it like anything, you know, the sports you play, the women you're attracted to, you know, whatever, uh, lots of your career, you know, um, you know, as far as collecting and writing, it's like find something that, that you enjoy. Right. And, so if you if you enjoy the hunt, you know if you enjoy finding a new item or finding a new piece of information, and then if you enjoy telling others about it, sharing it with others on some website or in a podcast or however you know write a book, however it is that you do that, um, you know I just think it's find the things you enjoy collecting, and it may be based on the town you grew up in or. You know, somebody that you've known or whatever whatever connection you feel to that subject, you know, that's the way to go because um, that's probably going to stand in pretty good stead long-term. And then don't be afraid to evolve, right? You know, if your interests change, change with them.
2: Exactly. Great advice. I appreciate it. Tim, all I can say is you've got a great book coming out. I appreciate you letting me look at it beforehand. I'm going to be reviewing it in uh, this coming issue of Good Iron Greats which should be out uh, roughly the second week of January, the winter uh, edition. Uh, but I, highly, I will be highly recommending it like I recommended your other two books. Uh, great job on it. And I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule today to talk to us and keep up the great work on your website. Uh, I I, uh, I sadly forgot all about it, and I just subscribed to it a couple of days ago. So uh, I'm glad I did. I, I forgot what I was missing with it. Keep up the great work on it. And well, thanks for being on today.
3: Yeah. Hey, thank you. Appreciate you having me on. And uh
2: if we if we don't
3: chat otherwise you guys have enjoy your uh Thanksgiving and then
2: uh and
3: any other holidays that you have coming on up Same, I handle. know I will.
2: Thanks for being on. Okay. All me. right, we're down to we're down to about two minutes. We're gonna go into our two minute uh warning and wrap up. Jeff, I'm gonna hand off to you. What'd you pick up on tonight's show? Wow.
0: So um, we need more Tim Browns in our hobby. I mean, he is drilling in. I mean, football archaeology is the perfect term for what he's doing. He is uncovering the history of our sport. And more people need to do that. More people need to support Tim. So please buy his books, you know, subscribe to um, his website. I mean, this is the kind of stuff we need to be doing as a community and um just fantastic stuff i love reading his things and he is really drilling into the things that nobody
2: else is talking
0: about in our sport and in our history and that's just so cool i love it
2: absolutely love it and again i i agree with you hundred percent and again i feel very strongly it's almost like it's a forgotten history of football that we forget everything pre 1970, you know, basically from 1869 to 1969, we we want to forget about it for whatever reason, and then and then we just go into this this you know, past and blab about 1970 up. You know, there's so much history mm-hmm. of the sport, it's not even funny. There's so much history of the memorability of the sport, it's not even funny. And again, I agree with you. Tim's doing a great job with the website. I highly recommend all our listeners. Uh, to pick up his books, especially his new one coming out, and subscribe to that website, and uh, just just great work that he does in trying to find, uh, you know, what really is going on. All right, we're down to about 50 seconds, Jeff. Any final thoughts? So we're going to wrap it up.
0: Well, I'm happy that Tim is not only a researcher but a collector. He mentioned our PPCs. I do think they're an underappreciated um, part of our hobby. There are some great RPPCs out there from the, you know, early days of NFL and early days of pro and college football. And um, it's awesome to hear he's focusing on some of his attention on that. Um, We just need to keep, you know, beating the drum about the history of football and holding the NFL accountable uh, to your point of, you know, not forgetting about the early days of pro football.
2: Exactly. We're out of time. Thanks. Thanks for being on. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back with another show soon. Take care.
0: Thanks, Bob.
1: Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network.